According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, we are in Proverbs, Proverbs 1.1, taking a look at verses uh, 2 through 7 today. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. All right, the introduction to the book tells you what the book will do to you if you accept it, if you study it, if you receive it, if you live it, if you let it transform you. This is what the Word of God will do to you. This is what specifically Proverbs will do to you as uh, Solomon introduces it. Before we get started, let's ask God the Father to quiet our hearts, to humble us under the authority of His Word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the blessings we have. You pour out your blessings day by day. We thank you for the, the blessing to assemble together, to present ourselves before you, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so, Father, we call upon your faithfulness to um, lead us into these things, to guide our thinking, to take your word and implant it within each one of us. If there's pride or other distractions that would hinder the word from being received with humility, then uh, deal with that, Father, and uh, allow us to receive your word with humility. Uh, re- implant your word, Father, because that is what's able to save our souls. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Proverbs. Under point one, Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. A whole bunch of subpoints. Skip through those. A, B, C, D, E. Last week we were looking at the Davidic kings that are always compared to their father, that is the head of the house, the house of David, the Davidic line. Every king of Judah is a Davidic king. In the uh, northern kingdom they had several assassinations and coups and removals, and so uh, not every king from Jeroboam to Hosea was a son of Jeroboam. And you end up with different dynasties, different houses, and a king would be executed, and then a a new uh, assassin would become king, and then he would start the new house, as it were. And so they had several houses in the northern kingdom, not so in the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom from uh, David to Zedekiah was entirely Davidic. All right, moving on to point two then, the Proverbs of Solomon. The Proverbs of Solomon. We need to understand what is a proverb, (laughs) all right? What is a proverb? Well, it's a, it's a short statement. Okay, well, is, is every short statement a proverb? No. A short statement that communicates wisdom. A short memorable statement. A short pithy statement. Um, there's, there's probably a hundred definitions of what is a proverb. All right. And uh, now they typically use the word short. So if you get too long, then you can't call them a proverb anymore. Um, then if they get too long, you've got to call them a parable. Okay? If they're a story, right? Um, a man had two sons, uh, and the younger son said to him, give me my share of the inheritance. All right? And so this story unfolds, and he gets the share of the inheritance, and he leaves, and he blows it all with whatever, loose living, and, and then he comes back, and then the older brother gets his nose bent out of joint. Okay? And you see, I've kind of departed from the text, but I'm still telling the same story right? And so that's not a proverb by the English definition of proverb, all right? But it is a mashal, all right? And, and we have this, artificial, I think, artificial um, division in our thinking between proverbs and parables uh, based on whether they're short and pithy or whether they are... And what does pithy mean anyway? I had to look that up the other day. And if... Um, and if they're long and storytelling, then, then that's how we, we break it down. We say, this is a proverb, that's a parable. Okay? In the Hebrew, it's the same thing. They're mashal, or mashalim. 
whether they're short and pithy or whether they're long and storytelling and what have you. They're designed to communicate wisdom. They're designed to make a point, to make a point. And if, it, if you can make a point in a short statement, uh, great, make a point in a short statement. If, uh, if, it's, if you have to tell an entire story to make a point, then tell an entire story to make a point. Either way, it is a mashalim, all right? And Dan, that might be our delivery man that just came in through the driveway if you want to check on that. Thank you, sir. So, uh, this book is called the Mishle Shalomo. So, what are, what's a Mishle? <laughs> Mishle is the plural of, uh, so, uh, the plural of Mishalim. What is a Mashal, okay? What is a Mashal? Well, we looked at this last week. The verb mashal is the verb where mashal comes from. Mashal is a verb used 18 times in the Old Testament. It means to represent. It means to be like. And so if you are made like somebody, then the Hebrew would use the verb mashal. And sometimes you are made like somebody against your will. Sometimes you're made like somebody and you're happy about it. Or maybe you're just drawing a comparison and you're saying this is like something else. And anytime you're making a comparison, you are accomplishing the activity of mashal. Okay? And this, by the way, gets employed in the similes of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, or in a lot of the parables, the kingdom of heaven is like. Okay? It is like a man who went on a journey. Okay? And so you're drawing comparisons. You're describing things that are like something else. And Proverbs do that. They tell you what a wise man is like. What a foolish man is like. What uh, certain women are like, okay? The strange woman or the faithful woman and uh, put a gold ring in a swine's snout. What's that like, okay? Proverbs will tell you what things are like. And, that, and that's clear, I think, in the idea of the vocabulary here for mashal, to represent or to be like something. The noun, mashal, is the noun for a proverb or a parable uh, an expression of something that is like something. <laughs> That's all it is. It's an expression of something that is like something. It is a way to communicate likeness. All right? And, and really, that's what every parable does in terms of telling you what the kingdom of heaven is like or telling you what believers are like when they are ashamed to their father or, or what uh, believers are like when they're prideful and think they're better than their little brother or um, what uh, faithful fathers are like when they accept the, the repentant son back into the home. Every parable tells you something that's like something else. Every proverb tells you something that's like something else. And it is, it is that likeness. Okay? And uh, we have a lot of likes in, uh, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of likes and um, you got a whole section of likes in, uh, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? What's that like? What are the poor in spirit like? What are the, uh, those who mourn like? What are the gentle like? And you have all these similes. You have all these statements of likeness. Anyway, there's others. Uh, Jesus was uh, remarkable in this style of teaching, in this method of communication. All right, so a mashal is a proverb or a parable, depending on how it's rendered. Uh, it's translated as proverb in 1 Kings 4.32, Psalm 49.4, Proverbs, you might expect, uh, but not as often as you might expect. Uh, proverbs 1.1 1, 1 and 6, Proverbs 10.1, 25.1, those are both in section headings. Um, proverbs 26, verse 7 and verse 9, and then ultimately in Ecclesiastes 12.9. But for, for 38 uses of mashal, there's only a certain number of them, a small number of them, that are actually rendered as proverb. In other, we're going to see other translations of the term today where they are translated in other ways. Now, in Greek, two terms we want to understand in Greek, starting with paroimia. P-A-R-O-I-M-I-A. Paroimia. Or the accent on the ia. Paroimia. There we go, that's better. Paroimia. Strong's Numbers 3942, only five New Testament uses, several, uh, not as many Septuagint uses, though, as you might expect. 
It's the title of the book in the Septuagint. These are the paramia of Solomon. Okay, the Proverbs of Solomon. And uh, paramia is a figure of speech or figurative language. It is a, uh, it is a, a figurative way of saying something. Is a paramia. Okay, and you, if you think about para meaning alongside and you, you, you find a way to say something that might be alongside the, there's the, there's the, there's the straight way to say it. <laughs> and then there's another way to say it. Maybe it comes alongside and is an alternative to the blunt way of saying it. So that's a paroemia. I'm having trouble pronouncing that this morning. All right. Um, and it's in the title to this book when you read the Septuagint. It is how Mashal or Mashalim was translated. Instead of Mashalim Shalomo in the Septuagint, it has the paroemiae of uh, Solomon. Now in the New Testament, though, the uses are remarkable because they're not always rendered as proverb and they're not always a translation of the Hebrew mashal. So starting in John 10, 6, we can see it. Um, truly, truly, this is the parable of the good shepherd, uh, or the, uh, the door actually. Uh, let's see. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. So there you go. All right. The shepherd comes through the door because he belongs there. Those are his sheep. The doorkeeper says, hi, good morning. Good to see you again. Here's your sheep. Um, the guy climbing over the wall or sneaking through the window or, or trying to avoid the, the doorkeeper even from knowing he's there. That's a thief. Okay. Um, so to him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. He calls out his own sheep by name, leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger, they simply will not follow, but they will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Okay, so there is the parable, but it's called a figure of speech in verse six. It's not called a parabole, it's called a paroemia in verse 6. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them. This paroemia, Jesus spoke to them. But they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So then he tries again. (laughs) And he tells a different story. He tells a different paroemia, a different parable, a different metaphor, a different... um, it's almost like this is a general term that speaks of any figure of speech. There's lots of figures of speeches, right? There's idioms, there's exaggerations, there's, there's, um, there's euphemisms, okay? There are, there's any number of, of figures of speech. Perhaps it's best to think of paramia as the general expression for any figure of speech or figurative language. Not necessarily a parable, but it would include parables. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now he changes the story. He changes the figure of speech. Makes himself the door in this one. Then he goes back to, I am the good shepherd again. So we see it there. All right, over to John 16. Twice in verse 25 and once in verse 29. And he has been preaching at them all night. I mean, the the traitor left, the door closed back in chapter 13. And all the way back in chapter 13 when he says, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. So in 1331, your page goes red, right? And in everything following in chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, it's just... The bulk of these chapters is red. And, and what's he been saying to them? He's been, he's been, I think, he's been giving pretty straightforward uh, messages. Straightforward to me, of course, because I'm a church-age believer. They don't know what he's talking about. All right, their head is spinning. What? And, and every time you glance here at these, at these pages and you find black instead of red, generally speaking, you've got a disciple saying, what? 
<laughs> okay? I mean, it just, it just jumps out at you. In, in 1336, Simon Peter's what? And in uh, 37, it's Peter again saying, no, you're wrong, Lord. I'm going to lay down my life for you. And in 14.5, Thomas is saying, what? And in 14.8, Philip is saying, what? And in all these messages, Jesus is, is speaking to them, preparing them for the coming church age, and they don't have a clue. So in chapter 16, in verse 25, he says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. In paroimia. These things I have spoken to you in paroimia. And that's interesting, because I'm looking at all those messages in 13, 14, 15, 16, what we talk about as the, as the upper room discourse and the, and the um, upper room and walk to the garden discourse and so forth. Do they seem like parables to you? Do they seem like, uh, they seem like proverbs to you? Do they even seem like figures of speech to you? They didn't seem like figures of speech to me, but he called them figures of speech. He called them paroimia. He called them... Maybe, would we do better with this if, if uh, he said, these things I have spoken to you in wisdom literature? Okay, it's not literature until you write it down, but <laughs> in the genre of wisdom instruction. How about that? Because really, this forms the basis for the church age. Not church age yet. They won't understand it till Pentecost, till they get the Holy Spirit. But then the sermon, not the, I almost said Sermon on the Mount, the upper room discourse becomes the pedagogic um, basis. It becomes the, 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 the um, basic doctrinal studies for, a, for discipleship. It becomes the Proverbs for discipleship. You want, to obey, you want to obey the Great Commission and make a disciple? Take a baby believer that just came to faith this morning, take them through the upper room discourse. Teach them the, the paroimia of the upper room discourse. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in paroimia, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. So two uses of paroimia here in John 16, 25. And I think even the, the translation figurative language is problematic. What's so figurative about, about uh, a little while you will no longer see me, again a little while you will see me? Is that figurative? Maybe, maybe the biggest hang-up is just our theology, is our hermeneutic, right? Not our theology, our hermeneutic. Our hermeneutic is so, we're locked in on literal versus figurative. And we want to translate literally. And we want our figures of speech to be handled as figures of speech. So we want our similes to be similes. We want our metaphors to be metaphors. We want our parables to be parables. We want, we want our proverbs to be proverbs. And we want our allegories to be allegories. We don't want to allegorize where it's not appropriate. And maybe the biggest hang-up is the fact that we don't have a good term for paroimia. Just like we don't have a good term for mashal. <laughs> All right? And maybe we need to uh, simply leave them untranslated and leave them as as they are these things i have spoken to you in paremia i have spoken to you in a mode of communication comparable with wisdom literature in a wisdom bestowing pedagogy how about that say what's pedagogy <laughs> all right disciplined instruction for a child to drill it in, to drill it in, to drill it in, to drill it in. To recite it, to memorize it, to recite it back. That's pedagogy. That's wisdom literature. In that day, you will ask in my name. In that day, that is an hour is coming. Uh, again, an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, in the paramiya reason why he has to deliver this whole upper room discourse in Paramia is because church is mystery doctrine. They're not going to comprehend it at all until they receive the Holy Spirit. 
including the message that says, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay? They're not gonna, that, that reality won't hit them until they have the Holy Spirit that he's speaking about here. An hour is coming, that is, post-Pentecost church age, when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, I will ask, uh, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you love me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father, have come into the world, and I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. And so in verse 29, his disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a paramia. And are not using a paramia. So when he's describing to them, look, I've been speaking to you with paramia. Relax about that. There's coming a time and it's going to be plain. It will be plain language. And they said, thank you. Now you're speaking in plain language. You finally stopped the paramia. And they're able to relax. <laughs> All right? So that's the idea of a paramia. It is uh, different than just blunt discourse. It is different than just a blunt statement. Second Peter 2.22, the last use of paramia. There's only five in the New Testament. John 10.6. And uh, four uses there, or three uses there in John 16. And then the final use is in 2 Peter 2.22. So it's not a big term in the New Testament. It's only five uses. Talking about uh, the apostasy here in this chapter. Verse 21 says it would, have, it would be better for them See, verse 20 says, If after they escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. So if you get saved and then go back to an unbelieving way of living, what a, what a tragedy. It would, have, it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Now, not eternally better, of course. They're not going to die and go to hell. But temporally better. It would have been temporally better in time. Earthly better for them. It's earthly worse for them to be a believer in apostasy than it is to be an unbeliever. It's earthly worse to be a believer in apostasy. Because then you get the divine discipline plus the undeserved suffering. Of being a believer. Anyway, it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. And it has happened to them according to this true paroimia. And there it's actually rendered proverb. A true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. So there's actually two proverbs there. But he calls it a true proverb. Paroimia. Now this is the only place in the New Testament that paroimia is rendered as proverb and we would be comfortable calling it a proverb. I wouldn't be comfortable calling it a proverb in John 16 when Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you in Proverbs. And I read through the whole Sermon on the Mount, or the whole, I'm sorry, I keep saying that, the whole upper room discourse. I'm like, where's the Proverbs? Where's the parables? Again, I think, I think it's just the baggage in our mind of what we associate with, this is a proverb, short and pithy, this is a parable, storytelling, this is a, a metaphor, this is an allegory. We have classifications based on our literature of what these things are. And then we try to inject our mindset back into the Bible. I think we need to do it the other way around. Accept what the Bible says a mashal is. And accept that a mashal could have a variety of different forms and still be a mashal. All right. And then there's parabole. P-A-R-A-B-O-L-E. Obviously, it's where we get the word parable. Parable itself is not even a translation. Parable is a transliteration of parabole. 
and parabolae, 50 New Testament uses. This is much more common. Ten times as common as paramia. Paramia only has five uses, but parabolae has 50 uses. Most of them in the Synoptic Gospels. 47 out of those 50 are in the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As you might expect. Um, in, it is rendered as proverb once. It's rendered as symbol once. And it's rendered as type once. Which is interesting because there is a word for type, tupas. But uh, it's parabole in, uh, in that application. The author of Hebrews used parabole a couple of times and they were rendered as symbol and type in those ways. Well, this class doesn't need lessons in what a parable is. You just finished a 10-year Life of Christ series. series. All right? Jesus taught tons of parables, which means Jesus taught tons of mashalim. Just he chose the story time version of mashalim instead of the short, pithy version of mashalim. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, let's grab these three non-parable translations of parabole, starting with Luke 4, 23. Jesus is in the uh, synagogue in, in uh, Galilee, the area where he grew up, came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. They handed him the scroll of Isaiah. And so he opened the scroll, found the place where it is written. Isaiah 61. We were talking about this this morning, that they didn't just open up their tablets and, or their phones and launch the Logos Bible software app and find the, uh, find the place where it's written. They actually unrolled the scroll, found the mark where the last reader had stopped, Began right there. Customary practice in synagogues of the day. And so he reads a verse and a third of a second verse. And he stops. Very abrupt. Very startling. And he closed the book in verse 20 and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that's why he stopped the scroll, uh, the scroll and he couldn't finish verse 2 from Isaiah 61. Because the rest of verse 2 goes on to second ad- advent prophecies. So he has to stop with the first third of verse 2 in, in order to describe the fulfillment of what was fulfilled in Isaiah 61.1 and 2a. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at his, wondering, marveling, they were amazed at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? So they're wondering and they're amazed, not of the content, (laughs) at his eloquence. Oh, these words, gracious words, falling from his lips. He said to them, no doubt you will quote this this parabole, not paroemia, this parabole. No doubt you will quote this parabole to me. Physician, heal yourself. Now that seems rather proverbial. This seems like a proverb because again in our mindset proverbs are short pithy statements and parables are long storytelling uh, expressions, right? This isn't long in storytelling. It's not a proverb. It's, It's not a parable. It's a proverb. And yet it's parabole in the text. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. All right. It's parabole, but it's translated as proverb. Hebrews 9 9. The two uses in Hebrews of parabole. Oh my goodness. My Hebrew pages are mangled. Glenn's been using my Bible on Sunday nights, and chapter 3 is very well marked. All right. Hebrews 9.9, talking about the uh, Old Testament and how under law, under Mosaic Covenant, there were procedures and stipulations, and all of which deals with the outer tabernacle, deals with the, uh, the earthly replica, the earthly sanctuary, 
and how they all operated. And uh, all, everything had to be prepared. Everything had to be done proper, in order. And uh, verse 6, uh, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once per year. Okay, This is the, the, the limitation to access in God's holiness. One guy, once a year. And taking blood, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, for the sins of the people, committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. In other words, that earthly replica is a barrier to understanding the reality. It can show you the reality, but only up to a point. And then it says, which is a parable, a parabole, a symbol for the present time. The entire history of the tabernacle from Moses to Titus, <laughs> from when Moses first built the tabernacle to where the Roman general destroyed Jerusalem, the whole history of the tabernacle and the temple and all that, that whole history was a parable or a proverb or a symbol. This is what we're talking about. This is what a, a proverb is, a mashal, a mashalim. A symbol for the present time. In other words, it is something that tells a story. But it tells the story through how they do things, how they work, how they operate, how they, the sacrifices they offer, the, the bread they eat, the wine they drink, the incense that's sprinkled, the uh, people who come and worship. The activity tells the story. It tells the story through the activity. Just as Jesus tells the story through his parables. Just like Solomon tells the story through his short, pithy wisdom statements. In all of these ways, doctrine is communicated, but it's communicated in a mashalim. It is, it is communicated through the, the comparison of like with like. To make a memorable connection. To make a memorable, memorable connection. That's what Mashalim is. So, while the earthly tabernacle, outer tabernacle is still standing, it is a symbol for the present time, a parable for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since it's earthly, it's finite, it's temporal. All right, but when the Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. He didn't just operate within the parable. He didn't operate within the type or the shadow or the figure. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. And not again and again and again, but once and for all. Once and for all. So, a proverb can communicate truth, but don't confuse the proverb with the truth that it communicates. Okay? Don't confuse the, 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 the figure of speech, the expression, the, the uh, story, the parable, the type. Shadows and types are simply parables that are lived out in uh, the persons that, uh, that do them. Finally, then, Hebrews 11.9. You know, uh, you think about David was a type of Christ. Hated by his brethren. Right? Shepherding the sheep. Humble. And yet, raised up to be king. That's, that's, that's a picture. It's a parable. It's a type of Christ. Joshua, uh, Joseph was a type of Christ. Hated by his brothers. Sold into bondage left for dead, given a Gentile bride, and yet raised to rule over his brethren at the end of Genesis. Jo uh, Joseph was a, a type of Christ. All of these types are basically parables, proverbs, just living parables, living proverbs. They're not the, the make-believe story of a man had two sons. All right, It's a real-life story, but still a mashal, a mishalim. 
Hebrews 11, verse 19. Uh, and by, in verse 17, we read that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Now, he had other sons. He had Ishmael, and he had six, other, six or seven other boys through Keturah. But he is the unique, the one and only son, the uniquely born son of promise, offering up his monogamous. And so they're painting a picture, are they not? If a father is willing to sacrifice his monogamous, then he is portraying, teaching the doctrine of God the Father who's willing to sacrifice his monogamous. And so it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac shall your descendants be called. And so he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a parable, as a proverb, as a type, as a shadow, as a memorable lesson that teaches a doctrine, a memorable message that teaches a doctrine or a promise or a principle. Ultimately speaking, that's what it comes down to. A mashalim is a memorable saying, a memorable teaching that communicates a principle, communicates a doctrine, communicates a truth. A sower went out and sowed. (laughs) Okay? It's a message, it's a memorable message, it communicates a truth. Well, some, some cases, in some cases, they're real-life stories. They, they're real events. They're not proverbs. They're not made up. They're not, they're not uh, parables. They're not made up. They are true stories. And by telling those stories, you're communicating a truth. That's what proverbs are. That's what parables are. That's what uh, types are. In some cases, I mean, it's not pleasant. Look what Hosea had to go through. He had to marry a harlot. And then he had to take her back after she cheated on him. And he had to take her back. Hosea, his life. This was a proverb, a mashal. Okay? A living parable, as it were, because it was a true story. <laughs> but his life tells the story and communicates doctrine. So point B, so what are they? Are they proverbs or parables? Are they bywords or are they taunts? Yes, the answer is yes. They're all of them. They are all of them. Mishalim are uh, poetic ways or figurative ways, memorable ways. That might be the best memorable ways to communicate a truth. So if, if it's a short, pithy statement, if it's memorable and it communicates a truth, it's a mashal. But we tend to think of it as a proverb. If it's a story that communicates a truth, it's a mashal. But we tend to think of it as a parable. Is it, a, uh, is it a byword whereby it becomes a pejorative? Well, that's memorable. And so we tend to call it a byword or an insult. But it, the Hebrews would call it a mashal because it is a memorable expression that communicates a truth. Or is it a taunt? Is it a taunt Celebrating the glory of the Lord and and the rejection uh, or the, the judgment upon those who have stood against him. That's a taunt. All right? You say, well, I don't like taunting. Taunting's bad. No, taunting's biblical, if it's biblical. Sanctified taunting, not carnal taunting. All right? Sanctified taunting is a mashal because it's memorable and it communicates a truth. And it serves to warn others not to imitate the satanic rebellion against God. Because it's better to be taunted in this life than to be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. 
So Sodom and Gomorrah are taunted. And their names are bywords. And the history of the judgment of the homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah is communicates a truth for all eternity. So are they proverbs? Are they parables? Are they bywords? Are they taunts? The answer is yes. They're all of them. They're all of them. And if our language doesn't have the capacity to deal with it, well then we'll just deal with it in best we can in our language. Which means that we're going to continue to assign different words for these different things because in our thinking and in our language and our vocabulary and our culture and all and so forth, in our concepts, they are different things because of the form they take or because of the, the, the way that they come across. The way that they come across. All right? And if they come across that way, if they come across as a story that gives a minute, well, then we'll call it a parable. If they come across as a, as a short, pithy statement, then we'll call it a proverb. If it comes across as a, as a pejorative name-calling, we'll call it a byword. If it comes across as a celebration of God's judgment, we'll call it a taunt. Because it may, it may just be that, that we have to by virtue of our language and thinking, that we have to classify them with the different expressions. If we were Hebrew in our thinking and Hebrew in our vocabulary and Hebrew in our um, approach, then we would be much easier just simply calling all of them Mishalim and not worrying about it. (laughs) Not worrying about the form of the Mishalim. We would just embrace the Mishalim and say, it's a, it's a memorable way that God made his point. It's a memorable way to communicate that truth. All right. These are the uses of Mashal in the Hebrew Old Testament where um, they are not translated as proverb or parable. I think that's correct. Unless I made a point. Well, we'll we'll see as they unfold. But these are non-proverb translations of mashal. Either the verb mashal or the noun mashal. Okay? And I think this this will be useful for us. So sub-point one then. Discourse. Discourse. Mashalim that are not translated mashal. The first of which is discourse. Nine times. The Hebrew Old Testament has mashal or mashalim and the English just could not bring themselves into rendering it as proverb. So let's start with Numbers 23. What's the first thing you think of in Proverbs 23? Chapter titles? Numbers. 22, 23, 24, you're talking about Balaam. It's this, this is the section of Numbers that deals with, with Balaam. And so um, Balak tries to hire Balaam, and God met Balaam, and uh, the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth in verse 5 of Numbers 23, 5, and said, Return to Balak, and you shall speak thus. So he returned to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, he and all the leaders of Moab, and he took up his discourse. He took up his, in fact, there's even a footnote that says parable. Okay, He took up his mashal. He took up his mashal and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, Moab's king from the mountains of the east. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Now, does this seem like a proverb to you? Does this seem like a parable to you? It's not a make-believe story. It's not a man had two sons or a sower went out to sow. It's, it's a true story. From Aram, Balak has brought me. Moab's king from the mountains of the east. It's typical in Jesus' usage. Parables don't have names. All right. As I see him from the top of the rocks, I look at him from the hills. Behold, a people who dwells apart and will not be reckoned among the nations. 
Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I told you to curse my enemies. Behold, you've actually blessed them. Balaam blessed them in the process of uttering his mashal. He uttered this mashal. You want to render it, you want to call it a discourse? Do you want to call it a parable? Do you want to call it a, an utterance? It is a mashal. He took up this mashal and said, it is a memorable utterance, a memorable message. Verse 18. Again, he took up his mashal and said, Arise, O Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. You know, we might even call it a sermon. We might even call it a sermon. If, in fact, a public speaker gets up and he utters something memorable, something that would then be repeated, something that would then be recited, something that would then be, that would stick memorably, not so much for what was said, but how it was said and the message it conveyed. Uh, In our culture, I mean, look at the Gettysburg Address. What has that become? The Gettysburg Address is a mashal uttered by President Lincoln. All right, and it's recited, it's memorized, there's a message in it, it communicates a concept. All right. Numbers 24, verse 3, verse 5, verse 20, verse 21, verse 23, look at all those uses in Numbers 24. He took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. And it's short, it's just six verses, eight verses, whatever, it gets you down to verse nine, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, seven verses, okay? Blessed is everyone who blesses you, cursed is everyone who curses you. It, it concludes with the Abrahamic covenant, okay? It's called a mashal. New American Standard, the Lockman Foundation renders it discourse. I forget what the, uh, what's the Holman do with that? Do you have that there, Dan? Calls it what? Poem. Oh, poem. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I haven't even talked about poetry yet. Uh, verse uh, 15. Took up his discourse, poem, parable, mashal. And it's called an oracle. So it's kind of irrelevant what form it takes. If it's memorable, it's a mashal. If it communicates a truth, it's a mashal. And then verse uh, 23, or verse uh, 21, he looked at the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, your dwelling place is enduring and your nest is set in the cliff. Nevertheless, Cain will be consumed. How long will Asher keep you captive? There's a mashal. And uh, the Kenites would do well to memorize that and pay heed to it and learn the truth that's communicated in it. Again, he took up his mashal in verse 23 and said, Alas, who can live except God has ordained it? But ships shall come from the coast of Kittim, and they shall afflict Asher and will afflict Eber, and they will also come to destruction. So here's all the mashalim of Balaam. Job 27.1 and Job 29.1. Very early uses of mashal. And of course, I believe Moses is the author of Job, but in any event, it is of that time frame, even if he's not. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Job 27, and 29. Now, Job's already been going all of chapter 26 telling Bildad uh, what a help you are to the weak, and going on and on and on, talking about a number of different things, including some great angelic things. You see that in 26.5? The uh, departed spirits, the Rephaim, tremble under the waters, and their inhabitants naked a shale before him, and Abaddon has no covering. He's dealing with some tremendous angelic issues. 
He says uh, how the pillars of heaven in verse 11, 2611, uh, 26.11, I'm sorry. The pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. He quieted the sea with his power. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. This is some of the depths of angelic information here. That's not the Jericho harlot there. This is Satan. This is uh, the twisted serpent, Leviathan. By his breath, the heavens are cleared. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways. Humanity only has capacity to understand what God has revealed. And Job didn't even have a Bible. But he knows more angelology than most American Bible possessors. Okay? These are the fringes of his ways. How faint a word we hear of him. But his mighty thunder, who can understand? And so Job then continued his mashal and said, all that was called a mashal. And he continues his mashal in chapter 27. All right. Does that seem like a proverb to you? Does it seem like um, a parable? Seem like an oracle? Prophetic utterance? It's called a mashal. Chapter 29 as well. Because he continues. He continues in 26, continues in 27, continues in 28, talking about mining and amazing how they understand how to mine and dig and smelt and the industry there. And then uh, continues on. When is he going to shut up? Goodness. Chapter 29, he still goes on. Job again took up his mashal and said, Oh, that I were as in the months gone by, as in the days when God washed over me. It's called a mashal. Continues it in chapter 30. Continues it in chapter 31. This whole block from 26 to 31 can rightly be thought of as a mashal in Job's uh, d- development. Mashals are sometimes also called parables four times in, this, in the uh, Hebrew Old Testament. All right, so these are non-proverb translations of mashal, <coughs> including four times where it's rendered parable. Psalm 78.2. Now Psalm 78, we're told, is a maskeel of Asaph. And um, just keep that in mind for next week because we, we need to recognize what a maskeel is. A maskeel is wisdom literature in psalm format, in, in musical format. Uh, Proverbs you wouldn't necessarily put to music. If you do, it's probably called a, a maskeel, such as we have here. In a lot of ways, it's, you know, we, we distinguish between the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs. A lot of times we attach Psalms and Proverbs to the back of a New Testament or something. Psalms and Proverbs, what's the difference? Well, I guess you sing the Psalms. You recite the Proverbs. Same thing. As far as Mishalim are concerned in in large respects. Anyway, we'll talk about the difference between a Psalm and a Proverb perhaps. That'll come up too. Anyway, Psalm 78. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. What's a Proverb supposed to do? Give you wisdom and instruction. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a mashal, in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. Why are they dark? Which, have, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. Anyway, here's an application. And the Asaph uh, began his psalm with this. And then three times in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 17, 2, 20, and 24.3. <clears throat> it's also interesting to see the Proverbs outside of Proverbs, <laughs> right? Proverbs that show up elsewhere, not collected in the book of Proverbs, like Psalms that show up elsewhere that aren't in the book of Psalms. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, propound a riddle. We'll talk about those also. Propound a riddle and speak a mashal. 
to the house of Israel. And the English translators chose to render that as a parable to the house of Israel, saying, thus says the Lord, or the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings, long pinions, and a full plumage of many colors came to Lebanon and took away the top of the cedar. Now this actually resembles a parable. I'm sure that's why they translated it as such. You know, a man had two sons. A great eagle with great wings. Okay. Yeah, okay, it seems parabolic. I'll go with that. Um, chapter 20 and verse 49. Delivers this lengthy message here. And then I said, Ah, oh, Lord God, they are saying of me, Is he not just speaking parables? Is he not just speaking proverbs? Is he not just speaking figures of speech? Is he not just speaking Mishalim. And Ezekiel's a little bit, uh, well, a little bit uh, despondent, a little bit tired. He's been so faithful in delivering these messages and they're dismissive. Yeah, he's just a storyteller. Yeah, he's just making stuff up. Chapter 24 and verse 3. What do you think uh, the prophet Nathan did when he showed up with, with, to David and said, you know, a man had a young sheep. And he loved that little sheep. And he cared for it. And anyway, he tells a story. And got David just frothing mad at that no good, rotten scoundrel, right? Nathan was employing a mishalim, employing a mashal, speaking to David in mishalim, and communicated the truth in a very memorable way. Ezekiel 24, the word of the Lord came to me in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth of the month, saying, Son of man, write the name of the day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Write it down. Write it down on this day. See, because they don't have satellite uplink, Fox News, Shepherd Smith's not out there reporting on the, the fall of Jerusalem. But Ezekiel's announcing it in captivity. And so when the reports finally do come trickling in, well, what day did that happen? Ezekiel already had it written down. Said, see? <laughs> Speak a mashal to the rebellious house and say to them, thus says the Lord God. And so is this a parable? Is it a byword? Is it a taunt? Told you so. Told you so. Nobody likes a told you so. But when God told you so, and you're humbled by it, when you're rebuked by it, told you so. Proverbs is filled with told you so's. Warning the young man, you get involved in premarital sex, you'll ruin your life. You will damage your soul. You will do damage. And again and again and again, the warning is given. And the, t- the big I told you so is Ecclesiastes. As Solomon knows, he ruined his life. He didn't pay attention to Proverbs or Song of Solomon. He had no capacity for Shulamith. Speak a parable, speak a proverb, speak a taunt to the rebellious house and say to them, so speak a mashal, something memorable to the rebellious house and say to them, thus says the Lord God, put on a pot, put it on end, pour water in it, put in it the pieces, every good piece, the thigh, the shoulder, fill it with choice bones, take the choicest of the flock, also pile wood under the pot, make it boil vigorously and seethe its bones in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, this boiling pot is going to tell a story. It's going to teach a truth in a memorable way. And you think, you think you're the choice meat. Hmm. All right. Rendered as a byword four times. Rendered as a taunt three times, but I'm out of time. Next week we'll come back and we'll wrap this up. We'll look at byword. We'll look at taunt. We'll also see the fact that we've got a, a, a huge variety of English expressions. Proverb, a maxim, an epigram, an aphorism, an adage, a byword, a saying, a dictum, a truism, or a gnome. I love the gnomes. Nobody uses gnome anymore except for short little mythological creatures in your garden, right? But, but we have a gnomic aorist in, in Greek grammar. What's a gnomic aorist in Greek grammar? What's a gnomic statement? 
A gnomic statement is another way of saying proverb. A gnomic truth is a short, pithy statement. Is a gnomic truth. Is a gnome. Bothers me that it doesn't bother me, but it'd be kind of fun if we just rename this the Book of Gnomes <laughs> instead of the Book of Proverbs. Then we could have a book of dwarves and a book of elves and a book of dragons. And we have a book of gnomes. So I put that point on there just to let us relax a little bit. Um, if you're all mad at Hebrew for having this one term, mashal, that could be so many different things, don't blame Hebrew, blame English. English is the language that loves having 20 words that all say the same thing. It's because we're the mongrel language that has borrowed from Latin and French and German and Scandinavian and everything, Spanish and everything else imaginable. All right. So we'll come back to handle the bywords and the taunts next week and show that all of them are mashal. They're all memorable as they were delivered. Thank you, Father, for your truth, for your faithfulness. Thank you for Solomon and his mishalim. Thank you for Jesus and his mishalim. And uh, every form and fashion with which you designed your word to be memorable. And Father, uh, because you designed it as such, we, uh, we respond. We want to learn and not forget what you have provided for us. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.